Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter for Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about some of the interesting goings-on in the charity world. And this week, we'll be talking about charities' involvement in political activity and campaigning, following the publication of a new guide earlier this month by the Charity Commission. Orlando Fraser, the chair of the commission, made a speech at its annual public meeting in which he told charities to campaign with tolerance and kindness. He said political campaigning was one of several difficult contemporary issues facing the charity sector. And while charities must avoid party political campaigning, he said he expected charities to be involved in vigorous exchanges about what is needed from government in these challenging times. Now, that all sounds okay so far, right? But uh, although it's supposedly based on CC9 campaigning guidance, this new guide has been described by a lawyer who advised on the formulation of the original text back in 2008 as contradictory to the existing legal requirements. The lawyer Rosamund McCarthy Etherington of Stone King said there'd been quite a fundamental shift between the two documents and would cause confusion. I hope you'll agree, Andy, that I wouldn't be accused of partisan reporting in saying that government credibility is battered and bruised and confidence in its policy direction has plummeted. I think you're on pretty safe ground. Right. And at the same time, there is a real urgency for charities across the board to secure the support their beneficiaries so desperately need in this time of global economic crisis. So where do charities stand and how can they effectively campaign while sticking to the rules? To help bring some clarity, we're joined by Sue Tibbles, Chief Executive of the Sheila McKechnie Foundation, an organisation that aims to unleash civil society's social power by championing campaigners and campaigning. Hello, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I am fine, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, now, um, we'll start by talking about the guidance that the Charity Commission put out. We did ask the Charity Commission um, last night to explain why they felt the need to publish this new guide and why now specifically. But unfortunately, before we started recording, we hadn't received an answer. Sue, are you able to shed any light on on the timing here and why this might be relevant now? Well, not really, because um, it's a bit odd, isn't it? Why would they do this now. And it's tempting to think that it is in response to some of the noises off that we've been hearing, not least around the Conservative conference that I'm sure we'll come back to. But it seems to me to be a bit odd for a regulator to be swayed in that way. And Sue, what in your view is the current climate for charity campaigning? Um, What has changed in recent years and why? Yes, well, It's a really, really interesting time, isn't it? Because I don't think I've, not for a very long time, seen so many charities out there speaking up so loudly, such passion. Um, I mean, it is quite extraordinary. Um, But just to sort of step back a little bit, because I've been, you know, reminding myself the order of activities over the last over 10 years now that have contributed to what has been quite a contracted environment for charity campaigning, going all the way back to 2011 when the first gagging clauses were attached to funds for charities. And in 2012, we had the famous sock puppet narrative report from the Institute of Economic Affairs, another charity, of course. And the thinking that was expressed there has really taken deep root. So the idea that charities cannot use public money to fund their campaigning 
And that still remains a very solid view by many MPs, particularly in the Conservative Party, which is sort of fundamental because it would suggest that campaigning isn't is necessarily not of the public interest. And hot on the heels of that was the uh, Lobbying Act that was later introduced, which of course sort of implied that when charities do campaign, it's in their own self-interest, which I think most of us in the sector found a bit confusing. We had the stick to the knitting language first used in 2013, then repeated in 2014 when Brooks Newmark became the Civil Society Minister. Lodge Hodson brought his review out in 2016, none of those recommendations taken forward. And things have sort of ratcheted up from there. So the mood music around charity campaigning continues to be very sort of febrile. So that's right, we had Guy Opperman talking about charities not dabbling, didn't we, at the Conservative Conference. But around all of that, just added things layered on. So the attacks on lawyers and the restrictions around using legal remedies, uh, attacks on protesters, blanket bans being issued, actually challenged at the High Court, and the culture wars, um, and all the attacks on the National Trust and the RNI and so on. So it's been building up and building up and building up. In our last campaigner survey, it felt as if a tide was turning. Percent of our respondents said that given all of this, they actually felt much more inclined to campaign And then I think, as you said at the very beginning, um, as with much of the country, charities have looked at a lot of the measures that the government have introduced that are in direct contradiction to what they stand for and have just said enough is enough. And I mean, there's there's so many things to pick up on there. I mean, obviously, you mentioned your survey, Sue, that um, the Sheila McKenney Foundation does every year, isn't it? I think how long has that been going for and, and what sort of trends have been identified through that? I think it's in its sixth year now. Each year, it basically captures the sort of overwhelming consent. I mean, obviously, it's a universal consensus that charities should campaign. It's worth checking that. This is a survey of campaigners, so I guess they would say that. And we might talk about others in the Charity Commission who feel less clear about that. But then what it picks up is, is, I guess, some of that journey that I've outlined of the things that they find are getting in their way. I guess... One thing that's been quite interesting is that I think over many years they have talked about some of the barriers being internal to their organisation, so maybe a lack of confidence amongst management or their boards or indeed from funders. I think, again, that's beginning to move, particularly from funders. We see quite a few funders stepping into wanting to support social action, they might call it, or campaigning, but certainly charting the impact of external measures but as I said earlier, all of which seems to be really just fueling the fire of the determination to get out and to use our our voice. And, you know, I think the other thing just to mention is that it also seems to us that over that same period or even longer, the last couple of decades, there have been other things that have gone on that have, I guess, encouraged the sector into this quite transactional mode. So the, the increase in, in funds for commission services, some of which might come with gagging clauses, but that sense that you're there just to provide a service, often competing with the private sector, even things like approaches to performance management that require you to say very clearly what return on investment is, which for things like campaigning, which as we all know, it's very hard to even say directly we did this and that happened as a result, particularly if you're trying to change attitudes and behaviours and so on. And and possibly also adjusting to a change of administration that tends not to take such a positive view of the sector. So campaigning itself with a government that's got its own doors closed has meant that strategies should change. And I think possibly lots of organisations are quite slow to do that. But there's no doubt that that's all beginning to shift now. 
Yeah, and it's quite interesting to see the responses to different instances of campaigning by charities now compared to a few years ago. I'm thinking specifically of the scope billboards um, outside the Conservative Party conference. Um, For anybody who hasn't seen them or seen a photo of them, um, they feature, there are two billboards, feature a photo of Liz Truss. And one has a caption, we worked harder on this ad than the government has for disabled people. And the other one says the government is still failing disabled people. We won't stand for it. And compare that to Oxfam. They did a perfect storm anti-austerity tweet back in 2014, which said the perfect storm starring zero hour contracts, high prices, benefit cuts, unemployment, childcare costs. And that at the time, prompted a complaint to the Charity Commission by a Conservative MP who called for an investigation into what he deemed was Oxfam's highly political advertising. And the commission concluded that Oxfam should have done more to avoid any misperception of political bias by providing greater clarity and ensuring that the link to their food poverty report was more obvious. Um, Yeah, what do you make of that, Sue? Um, I don't think scope has provoked the same reaction? Is that just a reflection of the times we're in and perhaps charities are are bolder and know that they're not going to get the same kind of backlash? Well, I mean, you know, let's see what happens. I mean, it literally was one complaint from one MP that led the commission to investigating. So that's what it would take for, you know, further investigations to follow. And, And really, that's the kind of core theme throughout this period is that the that the right and the duty of charities to campaign has remained constant. And, you know, I'm sure we'll come to talk about this, but the the speech by the new chair of the Charity Commission was, in, you know, was largely underlining that. But there's been so much sort of noise that it's just created, I think, an environment of caution and risk that has caused the sector to contract when, you know, that right is, and that duty is very clearly there. So, but as, as we've been acknowledging I think it's quite difficult to pick charities off when they do stick their head above the parapet when so many of them are doing it. RSPPB, a conservation charity on concert with the National Trust, Wildlife Trusts, you know, it's very hard to argue with organisations that are trying to save wildlife, save climate, or it's, it's harder to argue with. So I just don't think those that are trying to meddle with charities' right to campaign um, are managing it in quite the same way. They've sort of turned their attention elsewhere, haven't they? So they're now very sort of focused on lefty lawyers and um, protesters and so on. I mean, we've seen, obviously, some of the major charities have come under significant pressure from some, particularly in the right wing of the Conservative Party, the National Trust being one very good example with the work of the organisation calling itself the Restore Trust that's been putting pressure on the, the National Trust after it published its report um, about 18 months ago into the links between the properties it manages and slavery. And people, some people in, in that group were sort of upset about it, have been kind of campaigning against them, in some ways putting out quite a bit of negative information and it seems some considerably inaccurate information about the National Trust kind of putting pressure on it there. I'm interested to just pick up on what you said about Orlando Fraser's speech, because obviously that um, in the on the day of the speech itself, it had led to a headline in the Daily Telegraph on that very morning, kind of warning charities against campaigning in a 
kind of political way. I just wondered what you made of that whole situation. Yes. I mean, we at SNK, we've been looking at um, threats to civic space over the last year. And it's been a good reminder because, you know, quite a lot of the things that the sector is experiencing aren't exclusive to the sector or, or directly targeted at the sector, so particularly culture wars. So I guess we have to see that for what it is, which is a, a sort of being used by those that I would say are trying to play to a gallery for sort of political interests um, around, you know, a so-called woke elite. That's a quite powerful point of view that's being levelled, isn't it, to try and, I, I would argue, to sort of sow division in the population, really when that division is broadly not really there, which is gratifyingly why both the National Trust and the RNI enjoyed such a surge of support afterwards. This is meddling and charities are being sort of caught up in it. And for the Daily Telegraph, I mean, I think that's right. So again, in sort of days when, you know, the way media works is not necessarily guided by truth or public interest, but literally by what's actually going to capture eyeballs. You know, it does seem to us that if the public don't understand and not clear about the legitimacy of charities taking a view on issues of the day to campaign to be involved in, in political debate not being partisan of course but to be involved in, if that isn't clear to the public at large it becomes very very difficult for charities to um to step into that that role and it makes it very very difficult to talk about issues around civic space because the issues have no saliency um and there is therefore no political cost in administrations using charities really as sort of, in part, I guess, fodder for their own political partisan interests. And going back to the guidance or this new guide, five minute guide that has been recently released, um, just thinking about Ros McCarthy Etherington's response. Um, what what was her issue and what are the guide's shortcomings and arguments for amending it? Well, so f- from what I understand, it seems to be the comments that were made around tone um, and that, you know, the new guide talks about potential for criticism being mitigated by the charity, ensuring that it conducts its activity with respect and tolerance and just drawing a, a contrast between that and the longer form CC9 guidance that's actually very clear that charity campaigning may well engender a strong reaction. It may well not be popular, but that's because, you know, politics is about debating different ideas and long form guidance is very clear that that's entirely acceptable. So she's quite, quite right to call that out. In fact, you know, the CC9 guidance talks about charities working in areas that rouse strong emotions in the public. They may decide they're willing to accept the risks of undertaking campaign because the potential benefits that came might bring include a greater public understanding, a change in behaviour and a change in government attitude toward the issue. So it's entirely recognising that that sort of, you know, eliciting a strong reaction is entirely reasonable. So that's what she's, that's what she's talking about. And I guess that's why the suspicions are why have they brought out this mini guide and is it response to those sort of comments about charities you know stepping beyond their brief dabbling and all the rest of it and somehow trying to suggest well by all means campaign but could you do it nicely and quietly and not upset anybody so just picking up on the, the sort of broad point sue then of of charities and political versus non-political campaigning i wonder if it'd be helpful for listeners if you could just sort of set out some of the issues and the dilemmas that charities face there and what they can do with and stay within the rules. 
the guidance makes a distinction between what they call non-political and political campaigning. And the non-political campaigning could be anything from raising awareness, changing public attitudes, or trying to change policy or practice of a business or a company, in distinction to political campaigning, which is activity aimed at securing or opposing change in the law or policy or decisions of a central government, local authority or other public body, whether in the UK or abroad. And if you um, are a charity that exists solely to pursue a change in the law or policy in that sense, then you cannot exist as a charity. If it is part of what you do, but not the main thing that you do, and it is in line with charitable purpose, then you can do it. One of the things that we've talked about in the past is the use of the word political, though, because I guess that sort of makes sense on its own terms, but it can become confusing because because we feel that the term political is often used interchangeably with partisan, because, of course, that is not acceptable by any charity at any point at all. So that's that's the position. You cannot support political party. That's clear. And then that's the distinction, as I understand it, between political and non-political, which is why campaigning organisations may sometimes have a charity to raise funds and then they'll have a, a different vehicle that isn't a charity to do their campaigning or lots of campaigning organisations don't register as charity for the same reasons. So as a final question for you, Sue, um, what, in your opinion, is the outlook for campaigning? I think that the future for charity campaigning is very bright. I really, really do, because I think that... Um, as we've been discussing, the relentless pressure on charities to keep their heads down it feels to me that something's just sort of burst inside and a, a huge number of charities have just sort of said, no, absolutely not. And, of course, given, you know, what's been going on and let's recognise that charities exist across every political colour working on every type of issue. But for a very large part, charities are concerned about social and environmental justice. And, you know, for various reasons, some not in the control of any administration, COVID and so on, but some of them definitely are. We're not really seeing progress, to put it lightly. So the combination on the requirement to drive that systemic change in pursuit of the missions that so many charities exist to pursue in a climate where they've been told over 10 years now to stop getting involved, keep their heads down, being subject to attacks for political, you know, party political, but I think everyone's just had enough, which is why this kind of extraordinary outburst of of feeling and anger and activity over the last few weeks is so very striking. And I think we're just going to see that grow. I think there are really interesting developments around charities looking at new tactics, so looking at community organising and looking at how they can unleash all the passion and interest in communities alongside what they do. I think beginning to address really important issues around inclusion and diversity and working with people with first-hand or lived experience. I think finding common cause with people in other sectors like the private sector. So I'm, I'm really confident that the charity sector within wider civil society is really getting its campaigning mojo on and and seeing that and seeing that and seeing that through our awards every year. Um, I think the thing that would be really great is if, you know, the public at large could similarly feel very clear about that is absolutely the role and purpose of charity. And we all know that in the UK, charities still tend to be associated with that sort of philanthropic idea of picking up the pieces and plugging the holes. 
rather than also being agents of social change and social action. And it would be great if we could try and make some inroads to help make sure that our public audiences understand that. And maybe there's a conversation to be had with, you know, fundraisers, how we make sure that fundraising communications support that alongside campaigning communications. But um, I don't think there's anything that's going to put this energy back in the bottle now. I think people are out and they're angry and they're determined to stand up for the missions that their charities exist to pursue on behalf of beneficiaries in line with charity law. Well, that sounds like a very good note to end on. Sue Tibbles, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. After we recorded this episode and our interview with Sue, we received a response from the Charity Commission on why they had published this guide and why now. Mazida Alam, Head of Guidance and Practice at the Charity Commission, said... This is the seventh in a series of five-minute guides on important topics for charities. Each is designed as an accessible introduction to the basic principles, which are then expanded on in our longer-form guidance, which we accept trustees can find quite long and dense. We have received great feedback from trustees since launching the first of the guides in 2020. There was no specific external prompt for our choosing political activity by charities as the latest topic, and nor will this guide be the last in the series. Of course, where charities are planning to engage in political activity or campaigning, we would suggest they consult our longer form guidance, CC9, as well. Now for this week's Good News Bulletin, featuring everything from the positive to the downright strange stories we've spotted in the sector. What have you got for us today, Andy? Well, regular listeners might remember that Russell and I, I think, spoke a few weeks ago about the flood of teddy bears, particularly Paddington's, that have been left outside royal residences after the Queen died. And there was a bit of a campaign that the teddy bears should be given to Great Ormond Street Children's mm-hmm. um, Charity. But the charity said, no, we can't have them because of risk of infection, that kind of stuff. So that seemed like it was all going to be falling flat. But the great news is that the teddy bears have been cleaned and have been given to Bernardo's. So uh, Camilla, um, the Queen Consort, has been pictured with hundreds, I think, of Paddington teddy bears that are all going to be donated to Bernardo's. Buckingham Palace said that those involved in the project hope the teddy bears will be much loved for years to come by the children supported by Bernardo's, whilst understanding the story behind the bears and how they came to be donated. How nice. A a piece of history. A a sombre piece of history, but with a very nice continuation. Yeah, what I'm not sure about is what happened to all the marmalade sandwiches that apparently were also donated. I don't think they've been surgically cleaned and no. uh, given to people. And hopefully, I, I don't think, do we need to remember that time? I mean, it just <laughs> felt like the country's gone mad. Why are people leaving marmalade sandwiches in the parks? <laughs> it was it was all a bit bonkers. But So there's a good ending to that story from a charitable point of view. Uh, Lucinda, what have you got for us? Well, my piece of good news highlights optimism for the future generation. Mm. New research by the Insights Group Maru Matchbox and published by Barclays Corporate Banking reveals that young people aged between 18 and 24 are more likely to donate to charity than any other age group. Mm. Um, So in the 12 months before the report was released, um, 90% of 18 to 24-year-olds donated to charity compared to 80% among the wider population. Wow. Uh, So why is this good news, Lucinda? Well, this could 
be good news and it could be less good news, but I'm going to keep the positive slant on you it. Do that. So traditionally, the older generation has been associated with higher levels of charitable giving, and that would be unsurprising given that they are more affluent, certainly in the current day and age. Um, so while younger people might be poorer members of society, it's not stopping Gen Z from consolidating their philanthropic status. Um, and it's there's obviously a strong correlation between this and the rise in digital payments, mm. um, which yeah going up while check and telephone donations have fallen by 96% and 63% respectively. I guess we're hoping that this level of charitable giving will continue as the younger generation become richer, as we hope, and then they end up giving more to charities later in life. Well, that's it for this week. We'll be back with another episode soon. So if you've enjoyed this one, make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast on all good platforms to be the first to know about it. And if you have any thoughts on our podcast, what you enjoyed or what you didn't, what you'd like to see more or less of, or any hot topics that you particularly like us to cover in future editions, please do get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Third Sector and our DMs are open and waiting to hear from you. Until then, I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Andy Ricketts. Thanks to our guests, Sue Tibbles, and our producers, Aidan Lyons and Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. Join us again next week. Mm-hmm.